Okay, everyone. So today on the American History Podcast, we're going to focus on a government, a political science point of view with public opinion, explaining like public opinion, how we measure it, all those things, surveys, polling, all that fun stuff. So let's dive in. So when we talk about public opinion, we got to look at the term public opinion, what it refers to, and it refers to the attitudes that people have about policy issues, events, elected officials, and politics. And it's useful that we help distinguish between values and beliefs on one hand, attitudes and opinions on the other. And values or beliefs, they make up a person's basic orientation to politics and it include like some guiding principles and ideals. They have that foundation there. Values aren't limited to the political arena, but a lot of times they do include those deep-rooted morals, ethics, aspirations, ideals that shape our perceptions to society, government, economy, things like that. When we talk about liberty, for example, freedom, democracy, equality, of opportunity. These are all basic political values that most Americans do hold. And another useful term to help understand public opinion is ideology. Now, political ideology refers to a set of beliefs and values that as a whole do form a general philosophy about government. And for example, a lot of Americans believe governmental solutions to problems are just inherently inferior to solutions that are offered by the private sector and free markets. And having a philosophy about government like this can predispose individuals to form negative views of specific government programs even before they know much about the policy itself. Now, an attitude or opinion is a view about a particular issue, person, or event. An individual may have an attitude toward American policy, like in the Middle East, or an opinion about economic inequality in America itself. That attitude may have emerged from a broad belief about military intervention or about the role of government in the economy, but the opinion itself is very specific. And some attitudes may be short-lived. They can change based on changing circumstances or new information. Others may change over a few years, and others may not change at all over a lifetime. And so to measure public opinion on some specific issue, we have to study the individual opinions of thousands or even millions of people aggregated or compiled altogether. And it's kind of a way to gauge what Americans think about politics and policy. So when we think of public opinion, we often think of terms of differences of opinion. The media are very fond of reporting political differences between Republicans and Democrats, blacks and whites, women and men, young and old, so on and so forth. And Americans do differ on many issues. These differences are associated with like partisanship, economic status, social and demographic characteristics like race and ethnicity, gender, income, education, age, religion, even the region like Midwest, West Coast, Northeast, the South, and individuals whose incomes differ substantially do tend to have varying views on several important economic and social programs like government health care. And in general, the poor that are the main beneficiaries of all these programs, they support them more strongly than do those who are wealthier and pay more of the taxes that fund the programs. And political attitudes 
are increasingly influenced by partisanship, like Republicans versus Democrats, and also ideology, like conservative versus liberals. So, for instance, uh, back in January 2017, President Trump, he signed a very controversial executive order immediately stopping the U.S. refugee program and banning immigration to the United States from a half dozen predominantly Muslim countries, including Syria. And in 2018, the Supreme Court upheld the travel ban as constitutional despite several legal challenges. And opinion polls show that while 63% of Republicans say refugees from the Middle East are a threat, only 30% of Democrats say the same thing. So traditionally, there was an assumption that political values were rooted in rational factors like self-interest. And political scientists understand that opinions about issues in politics have emotional undertones and underpinnings as well. Emotional responses to candidates, events, or policies run all over the board from strongly positive to strongly negative. And these emotions are usually measured by survey questions asking if a candidate or another individual event or issue makes that respondent feel angry or fearful, anxious, enthusiastic. So contrary to the idea that public opinion is purely rational, feelings are complicated. They're often irrational. And once individuals become emotionally attached to specific beliefs, they tend to hold on to them even in the face of contradictory information. Now, using emotions as a guide, individuals tend to form opinions very quickly in response to current events. An important study called this affective, which means emotional, intelligence. So research has shown that individuals usually monitor political news by responding to familiar political figures or issues in a habitual or unthinking manner. But when we encounter a new political actor, event, or issue we tend to form a new evaluation. So anxiety triggered by a change in the political environment, like a foreign enemy, for example, like Russia, North Korea, ISIS, or an opposing party's candidate can trigger increased interest, attention, information seeking, which sometimes prompts a change of opinion. Now, these findings do suggest that even individuals with strong opinions might abandon their political habits if they have feelings of anxiety and feel threatened. Uh, so, for example, the mass shooting back at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School that was in Parkland, Florida, uh, it caused some very strong emotional responses, including fear and outrage among students and parents, and it reopened a whole national debate about gun regulation. And one month after the shooting on March 14, 2018, thousands of students and teachers walked out of school to protest the government's lack of response to gun violence in the U.S. And in response to the shooting and reactions to it, the Republican-controlled Florida State Legislature passed a law raising the minimum age to purchase a gun from 18 to 21 despite having a lot of opposition from the National Rifle Association. And so emotions do play a major role in public opinion about gun ownership, school violence, anxiety triggered by an event such as mass shooting often leads to increased interest and attention around an issue, as well as motivation to fight for change in government policy.
<laughs> so despite their differences, most Americans do share a common set of values, in, including a belief in certain principles, if not the actual practice of liberty, equality, and democracy. We at least share that belief. I mean, we don't always see it actually in practice, but Americans do tend to share that common belief. And so the U.S., it was founded on the principle of individual liberty or freedom. Americans have always voiced very strong support for the idea of liberty and typically support the notion that governmental interference with individuals' lives and property should be kept to a bare minimum. And liberty is, after all, tied to, you know, the whole creation, the birth of our country. Puritans fled to America to escape persecution in England for their religious beliefs. It remains a very important, just as important in contemporary politics as it was during the founding era when colonists were fighting for freedom from Britain during the Revolutionary War. And Americans have stronger views about the importance of liberty and freedom of expression than citizens in other democratic countries. And one example is the growing concern with civil li civil liberties related, related to uh, privacy and security, uh, especially looking at personal information online. Three and four Americans don't see a need to sacrifice liberty like privacy and freedom to be safe for ter from terrorism. Support for freedom of speech, a free internet, and a free press is higher in the U.S. than most other countries in the world. 71% of Americans believe it's very important that people can say what they want without state or government censorship, compared to the global average of 56%. And similarly, equality of opportunity, it's always been an important theme in American society. Most Americans believe that all individuals should be allowed to seek personal and economic success. Moreover, most people generally believe that such success should be the result of individual effort and ability rather than family connections or other forms of special privilege. Quality public education is one of the most important mechanisms for obtaining equality of opportunity because it allows individuals, regardless of personal or family wealth, a chance to get ahead. Education is one of the most important pathways to a high-paying job, but rising tuition limits access to a college degree for a lot of people. And most Americans believe in democracy and the rule of law. They believe that every citizen should have the opportunity to take part in the nation's governmental and policy-making processes and to have some say in determining how they are governed, including the right to vote in elections. So there's a lot of consensus about, among Americans on fundamental values. Nearly 90% of Americans believe free and fair elections are essential to U.S. democracy, while 83% say checks and balances with power divided between president, Congress, the courts. That's also very important in a democracy. 80% believe people should be able to make statements that criticize the government, including nonviolent protests. 74% believe democracy requires protecting the rights of the people, even with unpopular views. But there are emerging partisan divisions, even over core values. Republicans and Democrats differ significantly on the importance of freedom of the press. 
roughly half, 49% or so, of Republicans say a free press is important to maintaining a strong democracy compared to 76% of Democrats. Nearly 90% of Americans believe a strong democracy in America depends on open and fair elections. And back in 2016, America's free and fair elections were threatened by Russia's leader, Vladimir Putin, who orchestrated cyber attacks intended to sway the 2016 presidential election to favor Donald Trump and undermine his opponent, Hillary Clinton. The CIA, Central Intelligence Agency, and the FBI confirmed the Russians hacked the Democratic National Committee, the DNC, and the campaign of Hillary Clinton, releasing large amounts of data in an effort to undermine her campaign. The hacks produced a stream of leaked emails, resulting in negative views about Clinton's campaign in the run-up to the election. In June of 2017, the Department of Homeland Security confirmed that the computerized election systems of 21 states have been hacked by the Russians, although they couldn't confirm vote tallies have been changed. The National Security Administration, NSA, found Russian intelligence agents tried to hack the U.S. company that maintains and verifies voter rolls in multiple states. In Illinois, for example, Russian actors stole driver's license and social security numbers from 90,000 voter records. And in response to all these events, most Americans believe Russia interfered with the 2016 U.S. presidential election. 88% of U.S. adults had heard about allegations that Russia was involved in hacking the DNC and Hillary Clinton's campaign. Roughly three in four Americans believe Russia was definitely or probably behind the cyber attacks, according to a survey done by Pew. And today, 73% of Americans see Russia as a serious problem or an adversary more than any other foreign nation. Historically, Republicans have been more concerned with Russia than Democrats, but 39% of Democrats name Russia as the country representing the greatest danger to the United States, ahead of North Korea, also ahead of countries in the Middle East, and even China. And the Pew survey organization, they report that this is the highest percentage naming Russia in nearly three decades. Only 21% of Republicans say Russia represents the greatest threat to the U.S., however. So obviously political values that Americans espouse have not always been put into practice. For, you know, 200 years, Americans embraced the principles of equality of opportunity and individual liberty while denying them in practice to generations of African Americans. Ultimately, proponents of slavery and later of segregation were defeated in the arena of public opinion because their practices differed so sharply from the fundamental principles accepted by most Americans. Yet, even when there is broad agreement over principles, practical interpretations of principles can differ. For example, in contemporary politics, Americans' fundamental commitment to equality of opportunity has led to divisions over affirmative action programs with both proponents and opponents citing their belief in equality of opportunity as the justification for their position. Proponents of these programs see them as necessary to ensure equality of opportunity, whereas opponents believe that affirmative action is a form of preferential treatment that violates basic American values. We form our individual preferences and interpretation of values through interaction with family members, friends, teachers, coaches, mentors, and others in our social groups and networks in a process we call socialization, right? And so this process of socialization, we're going to talk about a little more later with family and social networks. So Americans 
share fundamental political values, but the application of these values to specific policies does vary. The set of underlying ideas and beliefs through which we come to understand and interpret politics is called a political ideology. In the United States, the definitions of the two most common political ideologies, liberalism and conservatism, have changed over time. To some extent, contemporary liberalism and conservatism can be seen as differences in emphasis with regard to the fundamental American political values of liberty and equality. <clears throat> For liberals, equality is the most important of the core values. Liberals encourage government action in areas like the economy and progressive taxation, healthcare and workers' rights, financial aid for college, environmental protection, and business practices to enhance race, class, and gender equality of opportunity. For conservatives, on the other hand, liberty is the core value. Conservatives oppose many efforts of the government, however well-intentioned, to interfere in private life and free markets, including government regulations. And so talking about liberalism now. So in classical political theory, theory, a liberal was someone who favored individual initiative and was suspicious of the motives of government and of its ability to manage economic and social affairs, a definition akin to that of today's libertarian. The proponents of a larger and more active government called themselves progressives. In the early 20th century, many liberals and progressives coalesced around the doctrine of social liberalism, which held that government and government action, like laws and policy, might be needed to preserve individual liberty. Today's liberals are social liberals rather than classical liberals. In contemporary politics, being a liberal has come to mean supporting government policies to create a fairer economic system and opportunity for upper mobility, including raising taxes on the wealthy, the expansion of federal social services and healthcare, government spending on roads, infrastructure, science, technology, and alternative energy, more vigorous efforts on behalf of the poor and minorities, and greater concern for protecting the environment. So liberals generally support reproductive rights for women, rights for the LGBTQ community, and are concerned with protecting the rights of people accused of crimes, refugees, and immigrants. In international affairs, liberals often support foreign aid to poorer nations, arms control, and international organizations that promote peace, such as the United Nations and the European Union. Many liberals are opposed to military wars, but under President Obama, some liberals tolerated military interventions in other countries. Liberals are also divided on issues of international trade, with some liberals seeking to support local businesses and locally sourced products. So, by contrast, conservatives believe strongly that a large government poses a threat to the freedom of individual citizens and to free markets and democracy. So, ironically, today's conservatives support the views of classic liberalism. Today, conservatives generally oppose the expansion of governmental activity, asserting that solutions to many social and economic problems can and should be developed in the private sector, local communities, or by religious organizations. Conservatives support cutting taxes and reducing government spending. Conservatives generally oppose efforts to impose government regulation on businesses, maintaining that regulation frequently leads to economic inefficiency, is costly, and can lower the entire nation's standard of living by making U.S. manufactured products more expensive and less competitive. The former Speaker of the House 
Paul Ryan, Republican from Wisconsin, is a leading conservative politician who is known to support cutting taxes and reducing regulations on businesses, among other conservative positions. In terms of social policy, many conservatives support traditional family values and generally oppose abortion and same-sex marriage. They often oppose environmental protections that interfere with private businesses. Many conservatives prefer stricter criminal justice laws, oppose drug legalization, and seek to reduce immigration to the United States. Conservatives today are deeply divided on issues such as immigration, international trade, and the fairness of the U.S. economic system. In international affairs, conservatism has come to mean support for military intervention and the maintenance of American military power. There is a split among conservatives in terms of immigration, with pro-business conservatives often accepting immigration and social conservatives strongly opposing immigration to the United States. So a couple other uh, ideologies going to talk about are like libertarianism and socialism. So libertarianism uh, is another political ideology that influences American politics. Uh, Libertarians argue that government interferes with freedom of expression, free markets, and society, and thus should be limited to as few spheres of activity as possible. Public education is a notable exception for many libertarians. Back in 2016, the Republican senator and libertarian Rand Paul ran for president based on his opposition to foreign wars and his commitment to civil liberties and small government. While libertarians believe in less government intervention in economic social realms, socialists argue that a more government that more government is necessary to promote justice and to reduce economic and social inequality. So back in 2016, Bernie Sanders, the Democratic presidential candidate, he called himself a democratic socialist, and he gained a lot of support from Democrats, especially millennials. And like the social democratic parties in Europe, Sanders supports free markets and private enterprise, but wants government to ensure more equality of opportunity for citizens, such as free public college, single payer healthcare, and increased taxation on the very affluent or wealthy. He also supports government policies to protect workers' rights and unions. Socialists are more to the ideological left than the mainstream democratic party, although they share many policy issues. So, although many Americans subscribe to libertarianism, socialism, other ideologies in part, most describe themselves as either liberals, conservatives, or moderates. So, the percentage of Americans who consider themselves moderates, liberals, or conservatives, it's remained relatively constant for the past 15 years. Uh, The Gallup Poll surveys indicate that as of 2017, 35% of Americans considered themselves conservatives, 35% moderates, and 26% liberals. But among young people aged 18 to 33, trends are different. Just 15% identify as conservative, while 41% identify as liberals and 44% as moderates or independents from the political parties. Within each ideological group, individual beliefs do often vary. Many conservatives support at least some government social programs. Back when George W. Bush was president, the Republican president, he called himself a compassionate conservative to indicate that he favored programs that assist the poor and needy. And in contrast, staunch conservatives hold much more critical views of government's role in the economy and society. 
and many joined the rising Tea Party movement in 2009 to protest President Obama's efforts to expand the role of the federal government, especially in healthcare. And while President Obama supported healthcare reform and other social programs, he was criticized by those on the left for extending the tax policies of his Republican predecessor, George W. Bush, which benefited the affluent for expanding U.S. military involvement overseas and for deportations of undocumented immigrants. And so in short, some of Obama's domestic, economic, and foreign policies are associated with conservatives and some with liberals. The real political world is far too complex to be seen simply in terms of a struggle between liberals and conservatives. All right, so people's attitudes about political issues and elected officials tend to be shaped by their underlying political beliefs and values. So for example, an individual who has... Negative feelings about government regulation of the economy would probably be predisposed to oppose the development of new healthcare programs. Similarly, someone who distrusts the military tends to be suspicious of the use of U.S. force for most foreign conflicts. The processes through which these underlying political beliefs and values are formed are collectively called political socialization. And probably no nation, certainly no democracy, could survive if its citizens did not share some fundamental beliefs. In contemporary America, the agents of socialization that foster differences in political opinions include the family and social networks, education, membership, and social groups, religion, party affiliation, self-interest, and political environment. Other agents of socialization, such as public education, promote similarities. Of course, no list of the agents of socialization can fully explain an individual's basic political beliefs. In addition to the factors that are important for everyone, experiences and influences that are unique to each individual play a role in shaping political orientation. An early encounter with an important mentor, for example, a teacher, coach, or religious leader, can have a lasting impact on an individual's views. Major political events such as the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001 or the 2016 presidential election can leave an indelible mark on a person's political consciousness. And some deep-seated personality characteristic like paranoia or openness, openness to new experiences may strongly influence the formation of political beliefs. One recent experiment found that people who tend to be more fearful appear to support policies that protect the existing social structure from both external and internal threats. Some new research has found that political beliefs may have a genetic basis and thus be hardwired. Using data from a large sample of twins, scholars found that genes in combination with environmental factors may contribute to our ideology. Individual backgrounds experience and social factors also explain people's political attitudes. What? So most people acquire their initial orientation to politics from their families. And differences in family background tend to produce divergent political perspectives. And although relatively few parents spend significant time directly teaching their children about politics, political conversations occur in many households. And children tend to absorb the political views of parents and other caregivers, often without realizing it. So studies find that 
party preferences are initially acquired at home, even in households that don't explicitly talk about politics. Children raised in households in which both primary caregivers are Democrats or Republicans tend to become Democrats or Republicans themselves. Not all children absorb their parents' political views, for instance. Uh, nevertheless, family, friends, co-workers, and neighbors are an important source of political orientation for nearly everyone. Political scientist Betsy Sinclair argues that individuals are social citizens whose political opinions and behavior are significantly shaped by peer influence, including friends and family. And Sinclair shows that social networks can and do have the power to change an individual's opinion. When members of a social network express a particular political opinion or belief, others notice and conform, particularly if their conformity is likely to be highly visible. The conclusion is that basic political acts are surprisingly subject to social pressures. So online social networks like Facebook and Twitter may increase the role of peers in shaping public opinion. So, for example, the widely shared Facebook meme of an equal sign against a red background in 2013 communicated support for gay rights at the same time that the U.S. Supreme Court was deciding two controversial court cases affecting gay and lesbian marriage rights. So, this social media discussion was associated with upticks in public support for gay marriage nationally. Public opinion on this issue changed rapidly over a decade. In, in 2017, 62% of Americans believe marriages between same-sex couples should be recognized by law, which was an increase of over 20% from 2005 when only 36% of Americans felt this way. And similarly, the hashtag MeToo movement that emerged in 2017 to highlight and combat sexual harassment used social media to organize online and offline. So after family... Formal education can be an important source of differences in political perspectives. Governments use public education to try to teach all children a common set of civic values. It is mainly in school that Americans acquire their basic beliefs in liberty, equality, and democracy. In history classes, students are taught that the founders fought for the principle of liberty or freedom. In the course of studying such topics as the Constitution, the Civil War, and the Civil Rights Movement, students are taught the importance of equality. And research finds formal education is a strong predictor of tolerance for racial, ethnic, and religious minorities. At the same time, differences in uh, formal education are strongly associated with differences in political opinions. So, in particular, those who attend college are often exposed to modes of thought that will distinguish them from their friends and neighbors who do not pursue college diplomas. Education is one of the most important factors in predicting who engages in behaviors that increase political knowledge, such as regularly following the news, voting, and participating in politics, as well as higher earnings over lifetimes. So the social groups to which individuals belong comprise another important source of political values. Social groups include those that individuals haven't chosen, like national, religious, gender, and racial groups, and those they join willingly, like political parties, labor unions, the military, environmental, educational, and occupational groups. Membership in a particular group can give individual experiences and perspectives that shape their view of political and social life. 
race plays an important role in shaping political attitudes and opinions among both minorities and whites. The experiences of blacks, whites, and Asian Americans, for example, can differ significantly. By 2045, the U.S. population is predicted to become majority-minority, as the size of the minority populations will outnumber white non-Hispanics in large part due to youthful minorities. Blacks are a minority and have been victims of persecution and discriminate throughout American history, while many Asians are relatively recent immigrants to the United States. Blacks and whites have also have very different occupational opportunities, often live in separate communities, frequently attend separate schools. And so these differences tend to produce very distinctive political views. Many black Americans perceive other blacks as members of a group with a common identity and a shared political interest in overcoming persistent racial and economic inequality. Political scientists refer to this phenomenon as linked fate. African Americans see their fate as linked to other members of the black community. This linked fate acts as a sort of filter through which black Americans evaluate information and determine their own opinions and policy preferences. That black and white Americans have different views is reflected in public perception of fair treatment across racial groups in the United States. So blacks are over 20 percentage points uh, more likely to believe blacks face racial discrimination in voting in elections compared to whites. Events and circumstances can cause opinions to change. Back in 2009, 80% of African Americans said blacks and other minorities do not get equal treatment under the law. The number of whites giving this response was just 40%. In the past few years, however, widely publicized incidents of excessive use of police force against African Americans have begun to cause a shift in public opinion on this issue. The activist movement Black Lives Matter gained momentum in 2014 after the killing of Michael Brown, an unarmed 18-year-old African American by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. Protests erupted across the nation when the officer, Darren Wilson, was not indicted. One month after that verdict, a white police officer in New York was not indicted despite video evidence that he had used a chokehold and other means of force on Eric Garner, an African-American man heard repeatedly saying that he could not breathe. By 2015, 90% of African-Americans agreed that blacks and whites are not treated equally by police, and 54% of whites felt the same way, showing that while there is still a racial divide on this issue, opinions on it have changed significantly over the past few years. And so strikingly, half of all Americans now agree that racism is a big problem compared to only 26% back in 2009. Ethnicity also affects policy attitudes. Latinos are the fastest growing minority population in the United States. While most Latinos are white in race, their shared Hispanic ethnicity contributes to a group consciousness that shapes opinions. The U.S. Latino population which makes up 17% of the total population and 12% of the electorate. It is diverse, comprising individuals of Central American, South American, and Caribbean descent, and thus their backgrounds and circumstances can be quite different. In spite of the differences, however, the Latino population has a growing sense of linked fate. Unsurprisingly, immigration is one of the most important policy issues among Latinos. With significant majorities of Latinos concerned about restrictive immigration policies and the threat of deportation. 
the number of first-generation immigrants or foreign-born citizens living in the United States quadrupled from almost 10 million in 1970 to over 40 million today. Most immigrants legally reside in the United States. Differences in opinion are found between Latinos and white non-Hispanics over immigration. Although most Americans, 72%, support a path to legal status for undocumented immigrants, there are differences in opinion based on ethnicity. In 2015, 69% of white non-Hispanics said there should be a path to citizenship for immigrants compared to 86% of Latinos who shared this opinion. President Trump pushed for new immigration enforcement policies that expanded the pool of unauthorized immigrants who could be deported because of previous criminal charges, even for low-level offenses such as a parking ticket or drug possession. So, among Hispanics that are lawful permanent residents but not U.S. citizens, 66% were very or somewhat concerned about deportation for themselves or their friends and family. With respect to ideology, Latinos typically are supportive of government laws to improve the lives of citizens and to reduce prevailing inequality, which includes favoring public funding for education, health, and welfare. Latinos generally see inactive government as a good thing and favor liberal economic policies to create jobs and improve the economy. While Latinos tend to be fairly religious, Latino decision surveys find they do not allow their religious beliefs to dictate their political decisions. They are thus less likely to vote for conservative politicians because of social issues. Men and women have important differences of opinion as well. Reflecting differences in social roles and occupational patterns, women tend to oppose military intervention more than men do, are more likely than men to favor gun control, and are more supportive of government social programs. Perhaps because of these differences on issues, women are more likely than men to vote for Democratic candidates. In the 2016 presidential election, men were much more likely to favor Republican Donald Trump and women to favor Democrat Hillary Clinton. This tendency of men's and women's opinions to differ is known as the gender gap. Following the election, men are now much more likely than women to say they have quite a lot of confidence in the future of the United States than women. This represents a significant change from 2015 when men and women had similar levels of confidence. As of 2018, only 30% of women approved of the job Trump doing was as president, compared to 46% of men. This 16% gender gap in presidential approval is wider than for any other modern president. Religion is an important predictor of opinion on a wide range of issues. Religious individuals are usually defined in surveys regarding religious affiliation, frequency of church attendance, and the belief that religion and prayer are important in their lives. One of the fastest growing groups in America are those without a religious affiliation. Among religious groups, white evangelical Protestants tend to be even more conservative than Catholics. Just over 30% of evangelical Protestants believe abortion rights for women should always be permitted, compared to 75% of those without religious affiliation. Similarly, sharp differences in opinion are also found in terms of attitudes about same-sex marriage. Only 35% of evangelical Protestants support same-sex marriage, compared to 76% of the non-religious. Religion also helps us understand opinions on teaching evolution in the public schools, environmental policy, immigration, partisanship, ideology, and other issues. White evangelicals and Wheatley churchgoers are much more likely to hold conservative views and be Republican, while the religiously unaffiliated are more likely to hold liberal views in favor of the Democratic Party.
Political party membership is one of the most important factors affecting political attitudes. We can think of partisanship as red or blue tinted glasses that color opinion on a vast array of issues. Self-identified partisans, which are people affiliating with the Republican or Democratic Party, tend to rely on party leaders and the media for cues on the appropriate positions to take on major political issues. In recent years, party polarization has become a defining feature of Congress and many state legislatures. As a result, the leadership of the Republican Party has become increasingly conservative, whereas that of the Democratic Party has become more liberal, a shift reflected in public opinion. Geographic sorting, where liberals choose to live in neighborhood cities, counties, and states that are more liberal, while conservatives move to areas with populations with more conservative views, also contributes to mass polarization. Large cities, such as New York City, Chicago, and Los Angeles, have predominantly Democratic populations, while Republicans are more numerous in rural and suburban areas. According to recent studies, differences between Democratic and Republican partisans on a variety of political and policy questions are greater today than during any other period for which data are available. Across a wide range of issues, Democrats and Republicans strongly disagree. So, why differences in public opinion exist based on partisanship involving immigration, energy, income inequality, infrastructure, job creation, climate change, and energy, national defense, budget deficit, taxes, terrorism, trade, and much more. Despite the fact that the rift between the red or Republican-leaning and blue Democratic-leaning state seems deeper than ever, political scientist Morris Fiorina and colleagues argue that most Americans hold moderate opinions. While political elites and members of Congress may be highly polarized, there is general agreement among most Americans, even on those issues thought to be most divisive. Thus, evidence of partisan polarization of public opinion is mixed. Some see deep divisions, while others see evidence of popular consensus. Another way that membership in groups can affect political beliefs is that through what might be called rational political interests. On many economic issues, for example, the interests of the rich and the poor differ significantly. Inevitably, these differences in interests will produce differences in political outlook. The framers of the Constitution thought that the inherent gulf between the rich and the poor would always be the most important source of conflict in political life. Today, significant numbers of Republicans and Democrats bemoan the chasm between the 99% of income earners and the top 1%. Donald Trump, on the right, and Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, on the left, made income inequality a major piece of their 2016 campaigns. But while there might be agreement on the problem, there are huge disagreements about the solution. Republicans favor cutting taxes on business and wealthier Americans. In addition, President Trump favored creating jobs by promoting an isolationist foreign policy with reduced reliance on free trade, tariffs on steel and aluminum, and limiting foreign immigration. Liberals tend to favor government policies to promote, promote equality, such as raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, free college education, and raising taxes on the wealthy, as well as incentives to encourage employee-owned companies and strengthen employee unions. Wealthier individuals tend to favor the Republican solutions, including tax cuts, while the less wealthy tend to favor the liberal policies, including government benefits. However, some researchers have found that people don't necessarily translate 
broad concerns about inequality or their own economic self-interest into specific policy preferences. So the poor, middle-class, and affluent alike favored tax cuts from President George W. Bush. But most average citizens lack necessary information about the effects of the tax cuts, so it could have skewed the results. Differences in interests also exist among the generation. Senior citizens and younger Americans have different views on such diverse issues as the war on drugs, social security, and criminal justice. The young, for example, are much more accepting of legalization of marijuana than are older citizens. The younger are also more likely to favor same-sex marriage than are older citizens. They are more concerned about the high cost of a college education, climate change, criminal justice issues, and privacy and security online with government surveillance. Older citizens are more concerned with protecting Social Security benefits than are the young. Some of these differences are rooted in where individuals learn about politics and media consumption. The young are significantly more likely to get their news online and are less likely to watch television news. Nevertheless, group membership can never fully explain a given individual's political views. An individual's unique personality and life experiences may produce political views very different from those of the group to which one might nominally belong. Some African Americans are conservative Republicans, and some wealthy business people are very liberal. Group membership is conducive to particular outlooks, but is not determinative. A final set of factors that shape political attitudes and values are the conditions under which individuals become involved in political life. So although political beliefs are influenced by family background and group membership, the content and character of these views is to a large extent determined by political circumstances. For example, the baby boom generation that came of age in the 1960s was exposed to the Vietnam War and the resulting widespread anti-war protests on college campuses and in urban areas throughout the nation. As a result, this generation has generally opposed foreign wars. Similarly, the views held by members of a particular group can shift dramatically over time as political circumstances change. For example, white Southerners were staunch members of the Democratic Party from the Civil War through the 1960s. As Democrats, they became key supporters of liberal New Deal and post-New Deal social programs that greatly expanded the size and power of the national government and provided social welfare programs. The 1960s marked the beginning of the South's move from the Democratic to the Republican camp, mainly because of white Southerners' opposition to racial integration of schools and public facilities. Since the 1960s, a majority of Southern whites have shifted to the Republican Party and away from the Democrats. Today, Southern whites provide a solid base of support for efforts to scale back social programs and sharply reduce the size and power of the national government, hence the popularity of the Tea Party movement. This major shift in partisanship in the South was the result of changes in the political environment and the policies promoted by the parties. Another example of public opinion change can be seen in the evolving political environment in the West. California's Republican governor in the 1970s, Ronald Reagan, went on in the 1980s to become one of the most admired Republican presidents, ushering in major tax reform and scaling back the size and reach of the federal government. But since the 1990s, California, once a Republican stronghold, has become solidly Democratic. Some argue that the shift began with a series of Republican-endorsed ballot measures targeting racial and ethnic minorities, including immigration, affirmative action, and bilingual education, which triggered a backlash, especially among Latinos, who have previously participated in politics in very low numbers. 
In the 1990s, the number of Latino voters who favor more liberal public policy increased dramatically, with Latinos and Blacks combined making up more than 50% of California's population. This demographic environmental change moved California to a solid democratic state. In this case, immigration and demographic change to environmental factors caused public opinion in the nation's largest state to change over time. That is actually not true. Sorry, I'm reading like from a textbook with this, you know, because I mean, it is a lecture. You want to see like how it is like looking at a textbook and California is not the largest state in the country. Alaska is the largest state in the United States. Texas is number two. California comes in third. But just in some, sorry, I digress, but in some public opinion and orientations are shaped by the political circumstances in which individuals and groups find themselves. And those outlooks can change as circumstances change. Now, I will say with California, they are the most heavily populated state. They are number one as far as population goes. There's more people there than anywhere else, but they're not the largest state as far as like land area goes. All right. So what we talked about before describes factors that shape individuals' opinions, including political socialization, group identity, political environment, right? But one of the most important studies of how public opinion is formed is by a political scientist named John Zoller. And Zoller argues that individuals learn about politics by converting information from the news, elected officials, and other sources into opinions. So his model of opinion formation works in three stages. So we get the received stage where an individual receives information from a number of different sources in the accept stage, the individual assesses the information through the lens of her or his own political views and accepts only those messages that are in line with previously held beliefs, meaning that some political information will be rejected. And then finally, in the sample stage, the individual selects some of the accepted information, often the information that is most recent, and forms an opinion from it. So according to this theory, if you... Receive information from various sources about a predisposed tax cut. You will then assess the different messages based on your own previously held beliefs about tax cuts. If you believe tax cuts are generally good, you will likely reject information that suggests this particular cut is bad and accept only the messages suggesting that it is good. So the decision to accept or reject information is based on political knowledge. When asked about his opinion on a topic, the individual selects the most relevant or most recently acquired and accepted information from his bucket of information. Citizens with more political knowledge can differentiate between information that fits or does not fit with their beliefs and then correctly accept or reject it. So for less informed individuals, the media and political leaders may play a larger role in influencing public opinion. Low-informed individuals are more susceptible to fake news, partisan news, political propaganda from elites than more informed individuals. So this reliance on politicians and the media, Zoller concludes, it means that the public's opinions are often unstable and unreliable because the sources provide competing, changing information. So as a result, public opinion is often a reflection of whatever recent campaign message or media story an individual has stored in their short-term memory, and the effect is called priming. 
So another way of understanding how individuals form political opinions is the online processing model. So according to that model, an individual keeps a running tally of information and uses that tally to form an opinion on a policy issue or to decide which candidate to vote for. However, by the time an individual actually votes or voices an opinion on a specific issue, they may have forgotten some of the older information included in their decision-making process. So the effect leads to the misconception that voters are uninformed when in fact their opinion is informed, but they have not retained all of the facts used to form that opinion. So this model also implies a larger role for political elites in the media, but does not necessarily suggest that opinion is unstable. If public opinion is easily manipulated, the democratic process, which relies on citizens to play a significant part in the government, would be at risk. But other research has shown that individuals are quite stable in their policy attitudes. <sighs> So some opinions are relatively stable, like support for abortion. It's remained virtually unchanged over the past decade, with over half of Americans saying abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Optimism about the economy and personal finances, however, experienced a gradual decline triggered by the financial crisis in 2008. In contrast, opinion on same-sex marriage has changed dramatically over the past two decades with approval of marriage rights increasing by about 25 percentage points and notice that when public opinion has shifted the shift has occurred fairly steadily in one direction it doesn't simply just jump around so the shift in public opinion on same-sex marriage it's occurred partly in response to government policy so political scientists call this uh, policy feedback so Back in 2009, Iowa was just the third U.S. state to allow same-sex marriages when the state Supreme Court issued a unanimous and at the time unpopular decision in the case Varnum v. Bryan. Changes in opinion immediately before and after the court decision, court decision were large. In a survey of Iowans conducted immediately before and after the court legalized same-sex marriage showed that certain groups, Democrats, educated, young, non-religious, and people who have LGBTQ family or friends, were the most likely to change their opinion in favor of same-sex marriage. And in 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of legalizing same-sex marriage in all 50 states. Favorable public opinion may have helped pave the way for national policy change. Public opinion on environmental policy shows evidence of both stability and change. So back in June of 2017, President Trump withdrew the U.S. from an international treaty signed by nearly 200 nations to protect the Earth's environment. The political decision was widely criticized by global political leaders. The Paris Agreement sought to prevent rising temperatures and climate change by reducing reliance on fossil fuels, such as coal, oil, and gas, and develop alternative energy sources. Surveys reveal most Americans favor protecting the environment consistent with the terms of the Paris Agreement. So, opinions on environmental protection go hand-in-hand hand with energy policy, as scientists find burning fossil fuels is linked to rising global temperatures. So, though there might be some broad agreement on protecting the environment, partisan differences about these issues has been growing. So... Today, there's about a 38% gap that separates opinions on protecting the environment between Republicans and Democrats. Many Republicans are concerned that environmental laws and regulations hurt the economy and can cost jobs 
About six in 10 Republicans are concerned with the economic costs of environmental regulations. And in contrast, just 17% of Democrats believe environmental regulations hurt the economy. So. But what best explains whether citizens are generally consistent in their political views or inconsistent and open to the influence of others. So in general, um, knowledgeable citizens, they're better able to evaluate new information and you're able to determine if it's relevant to or consistent with your beliefs and opinions, more likely to be partisans or party affiliates with like Republican or Democrats have an ideology like liberal or conservative. So as a result, better informed individuals can recognize their political interests and act consistently to further those interests. And in an important recent study of political knowledge, researchers found that the average American exhibits little formal knowledge of political institutions, processes, leaders, or policy debates. Many Americans could not name their member of Congress and did not know that U.S. senators serve six-year terms. They also found that political knowledge is not evenly distributed throughout the population. So those with higher education, income, and occupational status, and who are members of social or political organizations are more likely to know about and be active in politics. So as a result, individuals that have more income and education also have a disproportionate share of knowledge and influence and thus are able to better get what they want from government. So political knowledge may protect individuals from exposure to misinformation that can distort public opinion. While social media uh, have created new platforms for helping organize and voter mobilization, discussing politics, creating networks. It has been associated with increased misinformation though. So fake news on Facebook with, you know, more than a billion users globally was very extensive in the 2016 election. There was a study that found the top 10 fake news stories circulated on Facebook were shared more widely than the top 10, 10 authentic news stories about the election. And the most viral story on Facebook was that the Pope had endorsed, endorsed Trump for president. And Russian Twitter bot accounts have been linked to breaking many of the fake news stories. So since the election, both Google and Facebook have implemented new protocols to block content from deceptive outlets. And Twitter, Reddit, Instagram deleted thousands of fake accounts. Misinformation from elected officials and online news has encouraged more Americans to seek websites such as PolitiFact, FactCheck.org, Snopes.com to verify the content of political information. It's also encouraged more Americans to turn to established media outlets like Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal for their news. Political knowledge and accurate political news is more important now than ever. So because being informed politically requires a very substantial investment of time and energy, most Americans seek to acquire political information and to make political decisions on the cheap by making use of shortcuts for political evaluation and decision-making rather than engaging in a lengthy process of information gathering. So researchers have found that individuals rely on cues from trusted party elites, interest groups, and the media to aid in attitude formation. So today, tweets from elected officials are an increasingly important source of news. And Donald Trump relied on Twitter more extensively than any other president, as we know, often tweeting multiple times a day. So other inexpensive ways to become informed involve taking cues from trusted friends, social networks, and social media, relatives, colleagues, perhaps 
religious leaders. Political scientists Richard Lau and David Redlosk contend that by using informational shortcuts, average citizens can form political opinions that are, in most instances, consistent with their underlying preferences. They call this voting correctly. Even individuals with low levels of political knowledge are able to make relatively informed political choices by relying on these voter cues. It is generally accepted by scholars that people rely on shortcuts informing public opinion on politics and public policy. So from that perspective, lower levels of political knowledge about politics or instability of opinions may not be a serious problem. So the public's reliance on elite cues has taken on new significance in today's era of party polarization. As elected officials have become increasingly polarized, this has changed has this change affected the way the citizens arrive at their opinions? Political scientists have found a lot of evidence that polarized political environments change how citizens make decisions and form opinions. So polarization between the parties means that party endorsements of an issue or candidate have a larger impact on public opinion formation than they used to. So, for example, if Republican leaders in Congress support a plan to impose higher taxes on foreign goods, citizens that identify as Republicans are more likely to support that plan as well. And so at the same time, polarization decreases the impact of other information on public opinion. So party polarization may actually reduce levels of political knowledge. So elite polarization may have negative implications for public opinion formation. So another factor affecting political knowledge is the form in which people consume information. So the transformation of political information in the digital era has had a profound effect on the way the news is reported and how citizens learn about politics. So today, more than three in four Americans read the news online or seek political information online. Research indicates a trend in journalism towards shorter articles and flashier headlines and Twitter limits text to 280 characters. Americans today are likely to read the news by skimming and scanning multiple headlines online in bits and bytes rather than reading long news articles. There is a debate about whether the shift to digital media creates a more informed public given the broader diversity of information sources and more personalized communication of the news via social media or a public that is less informed because of a tendency to favor skimming and scanning over in-depth reading. So, however, like we've seen so far, some res- that we've talked about in this podcast, some research does indicate that most individuals use just simple cues and shortcuts to process political information. So if that's correct, skimming and scanning headlines might provide a reasonable way to be informed about politics without extensive time or effort. So political knowledge is necessary for effective citizenship. Those who lack political information cannot effectively defend their own political interests, rights, and freedoms, and can easily become losers in political struggles and government policy. The presence of large numbers of politically ignorant individuals means that power can more easily be manipulated by political elites than media, foreign governments, and wealthy special interests that seek to shape public opinion. If knowledge is power, then a lack of knowledge can contribute to growing political and economic inequality. When individuals are unaware of their interests or how to pursue them, it is virtually certain that political outcomes will not favor them. The answer is to get informed and stay informed. So one of the most important areas of government policy is taxation. 
The U.S. has one of the largest gaps between the rich and poor of any nation in the world. But rather than raise taxes over the past several decades, the United States has substantially reduced the rate of taxation levied on its wealthiest citizens. George W. Bush signed major tax cuts into law in 2001, providing a substantial tax break mainly for the top 1% of the nation's wage owners. Political scientist Larry Bartles has shown that surprisingly most Americans favor the 01 tax cuts, including millions of middle and lower middle class citizens who did not stand to benefit from the tax policy. Additionally, 40% of Americans had no opinion at all on the Bush tax cuts. The explanation for this odd state of affairs appears to be a lack of political knowledge. Millions of individuals who are unlikely to derive benefit from President Bush's tax policy thought they would. Since most Americans think they pay too much in taxes, they favor the policy, even if the wealthy benefited much more than the middle class. So opinion polls uh, showed back in 2017 when Trump and the Republican-controlled Congress adopted large tax cuts, even larger ones, for affluent and corporations. A majority of Americans were opposed to them. And so have political knowledge around taxes increased or did the opposition reflect the low public opinion about president Trump and Congress at the time? It's hard to say. So when individuals attempt to form political, to form opinions about certain political issues, events, leaders, they seldom do so in isolation, right? Typically they're confronted with uh, sometimes bombarded, by efforts of a host of individuals and groups seeking to persuade them to adopt a specific point of view. So the marketplace of ideas, uh, when we talk about that, that's the interplay of opinions and views that takes place as competing forces attempt to persuade as many people as possible to accept a specific position on a particular issue. So given this constant exposure to the ideas of others, it's virtually impossible for most individuals to resist some modification of their own beliefs. Three forces that play important roles in shaping opinions in the marketplace are the government, private groups, and the news media. And the news media we're going to talk about in another podcast coming up soon. So all governments try to influence, manipulate, or manage their citizens' beliefs. But the extent to which public opinion is actually affected by government public relations can be limited. So often governmental claims are disputed by the media, by interest groups, and increasingly by the opposing political party. So this hasn't stopped modern presidents from focusing a great deal of attention on shaping public opinion to boost support for their policy agendas. FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he promoted his policy agenda directly to the people uh, through his famous fireside chat radio broadcasts and a hallmark of the Clinton administration was the establishment of a political war room, similar to the one that operated in his campaign headquarters staff met daily to discuss and coordinate the president's public relations efforts. The George W. Bush administration, they developed a very extensive PR program to bolster public popular support for the president's policies, including the war against terrorism. 
And like his predecessors, President Obama was effective in shaping public opinion. He built support for national health care reform by relying on the power of his oratorical skills to build support for his administration's initiative and domestic and foreign policy. And Obama's White House was the first to use digital and social media to promote the president's policy agenda. Facebook posts uh, promoted his policies and served to personalize the president. And Obama was especially adept at using Twitter, with 70 million followers on this network. His use of multiple Twitter accounts to shape public opinion in favor of his policies allowed him to communicate directly with the people without having to be interviewed by the media. Though Obama was the first president to use Twitter, Donald Trump is the nation's first Twitter president. Twitter was a key tool to help Trump win the presidency. As president, he used it to promote his policy agenda and shape public opinion. Often tweeting in the early morning hours, Trump communicates his sentiments on politics like no other president in modern history. A website, the Trump Twitter archives, lists thousands of Trump tweets searchable by topic. Former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer said that although they often circumvent or contradict his own staff, and sometimes even himself, Trump's tweets will continue. And Trump used Twitter for policy proposals, government announcements, attacking his enemies, defending himself and his campaign, building support for his policy, party and policies, just plain venting at time. Laced with a lot of emotion, frequent typos, his tweets are very authentic, if not always factually correct. And not always. <laughs> not always factually correct. Um, he is definitely known for Twitter rants, uh, multiple tweets on the same topic, right? Uh, he faced mounting criticism, federal investigation into whether the Trump campaign coordinated with the Russians to sway the 2016 election. So new scholarship argues political leaders like Trump prefer social media to traditional media since they can control the content unmitigated by the mainstream press. So the ideas that have become prominent in political life are developed and spread not only by government officials and parties, but also by important economic and political groups searching for issues that will advance their causes. One notable example is the abortion issue. It's inflamed American politics over the past uh, almost 50 years now, right? The notion of a fetal right to life whose proponents seek to outlaw abortion and overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision that was developed by conservative politicians who saw of abortion as a way of uniting Catholic and Protestant conservatives and linking both groups to the Republican Party. To advance their cause, leaders of the Right to Life movement sponsored well-publicized Senate hearings at which testimony, photographs, films such as The Silent Scream and other exhibits were presented to illustrate the movement's claim that abortion amounted to the murder of millions of unborn human beings. Finally, Catholic and evangelical Protestant religious leaders were organized to denounce abortion from their church pulpits and increasingly from their electronic pulpits on the Christian Broadcasting Network and the various other television forms available for religious programming. Religious leaders have also organized demonstrations, pickets, and disruptions at abortion clinics throughout the country. The media are among the most powerful forces operating in the marketplace of ideas. Mass media are not simply neutral messengers for ideas developed by others. Instead, the media are opinion makers and have an enormous impact on popular attitudes. For example, since the publication of the Pentagon Papers by the New York Times and the exposure of the Watergate scandal led by the Washington Post in the 1970s, 
the national news media have relentlessly investigated personal and official wrongdoing on the part of politicians and public officials. Today, the national media plays a similar role in exposing potential government corruption and Russian interference in the 2016 election, like we already talked about. Media revelation of corruption in government has contributed to the cynicism and distrust of government that prevail in much of the general public. At the same time, the ways in which media coverage interprets or frames specific events can have a major impact on popular responses and opinions about these events. And given the critical importance of media framing to the way the public perceives the news, President George W. Bush, he went to great lengths to persuade broadcasters to follow his administration's lead in their coverage of both terrorism and America's response to terrorism in the months following the 9-11 attacks. The media acquiesced presenting the administration's military campaigns in Afghanistan and Iraq, as well as its domestic anti-terrorist efforts in a positive light. Even supposedly liberal newspapers like the New York Times published articles supportive of the military invasion of Iraq in March 2003, which was when President Bush ordered the invasion. In 2002, Congress passed a joint resolution to authorize the use of the United States Armed Forces against Iraq. Public opinion in favor of invading Iraq remained above 50% between June and November of 2002. By the time the invasion occurred in March 2003, after months of presidential messages and the media coverage focused on the threat of terrorism, public support reached over 70% for it. So studies generally find that elected officials are influenced by the preferences of the public. You know, so how do they know? And, so we see results with that show that it show the shifts in public opinion on particular issues that do in fact tend to lead to changes in public policy. And that's especially true when there are wide swings in opinion regarding particular high profile issues that are relatively simple, like legalizing same sex marriages. And other studies have found similar evidence that government policy generally does track public opinion and states where conservative opinions predominate tend to adopt more conservative laws and states with more liberal public opinion adopt more liberal policies understandably so right so there is reason to question whether prevailing public opinion causes politicians to make policies that reflect the general will or whether government policy causes changes in public opinion so the relationship between government policy and opinion may be dynamic, wherein policy responds to opinion, but opinion also shifts based on new government policies. Recent studies have found government policy to have an effect on opinion in various areas like the environment, healthcare, welfare reform, death penalty, smoking bans. Researchers found that in states adopting Smoking bans, public opinion then shifted to become more critical of cigarette smoking than in states without such bans. Scholars have suggested a number of possible mechanisms to explain this process. New policy may expose the public to new ideas, causing opinion to change or experience with a successful or unsuccessful policy may give the public new information. A policy might act as a signal of a moral or ethical view, such as a smoking ban acting as a signal that smoking should be stigmatized. And of course, sometimes public opinion and policy do not align. 
Sometimes public officials act on their own preferences if they believe it will benefit government or society, and lawmakers typically do use their own judgment when making policy choices. So when elected officials pursue policies not aligned with public opinion, it is often because they view particular groups of the electorate as more important than others. Inevitably, loyal voting blocks or interest groups that regularly contribute to a candidate may have their interests more closely represented than the general public. So how do we measure public opinion? We're going to get to that in the next segment. All right, so how do we measure public opinion? So a century ago, American political leaders gauged public opinion by the presence of crowds at meetings and their applause. This direct exposure to the people's views did not necessarily produce accurate knowledge of public opinion. It did, however, give political leaders confidence in their public support and therefore confidence in their ability to govern by consent. Today, public officials make extensive use of public opinion polls to help them decide whether to run for office, what policies to support, how to vote on important legislation, and what types of appeals to make in their campaigns. All recent presidents and other major political figures have worked closely with polls and pollsters. So it's not feasible to interview the more than 300 million Americans residing in the United States on their opinions of who should be the next president or what should be done about important policy issues, such as how to improve the economy and create jobs. Instead, pollsters take a sample of the population and use it to make inferences about the preferences of the population as a whole. So a sample is a small group selected by researchers that represent the most important characteristics of an entire population. So for a political survey to be an accurate representation of the population, it has to meet certain requirements, including an appropriate sampling method. For example, randomization. There has to be a sufficient sample size, the avoidance of selection bias as well. While some are skeptical of sampling random sample surveys, which are used extensively in business and marketing as well as politics, ensure that samples are accurate and reliable predictions of the underlying population. Websites such as realclearpolitics.com list the results of every political survey released each day. During elections, this can be dozens of different surveys daily. Every week, the opinions of Americans regarding candidates and public policies are measured, as well as opinions on a vast array of products like toothpaste, entertainment, movie star romances, and even college political science textbooks like this one. One way to obtain a res representative sample is what statistician, statistics, people that study statistics, <laughs> statisticians, there we go, call a simple random sample or probability sample. To take such a sample, one would need a complete list of all the people in the United States, and individuals would be randomly selected from that list. Imagine that everyone's name was entered into a lottery with names then drawn blindly from an enormous box. If everyone had an equal chance of selection, the result is a random sample. Since we don't have a complete list of all Americans, pollsters use census data, lists of households for in-person and telephone surveys, and telephone numbers to create lists, drawing samples from regions and then neighborhoods within regions. 
State voter registration files are often used in political surveys designed to predict the outcome of an election or public opinion. If respondents are chosen randomly and everyone has an equal chance of being selected, then their results can be used to predict behavior for the overall population. If randomization is not used or some people are excluded from the chance to be selected, then the sample will be biased and cannot be used to generalize the population accurately. Another method of drawing samples in the national population is a technique called random digit dialing. A computer random number generator is used to produce a list of 10-digit telephone numbers. Given that 95% of Americans have telephones like cell phones, landlines, the technique usually results in a random national sample because almost every citizen has a chance of being selected for the survey. Telephone surveys are fairly accurate, cost-effective, and flexible in the type of questions that can be asked, but many people refuse to answer political surveys, and response rates, the percentage of those called who actually answer the survey, have been falling steadily, averaging less than 15%. Sample must be large enough to produce an accurate representation of the population. Right? A survey of 1,000 people is almost effective is almost as effective for measuring the opinions of all Texans, which would be about 28 million residents, as the opinions of all Americans, which is well over 323 million residents. Flipping a coin kind of shows how this works. After tossing a coin 10 times, the number of heads and tails may not be close to 5 and 5. After 100 tosses of the coin, though the percentage of heads should be close to 50%, and after 1,000 tosses, very close to 50%. In fact, after a thousand tosses, there's a 95% chance that the number of heads will be somewhere between 46.9% and 53.1%. So that percent variation from that 50% is called the sampling error or margin of error. The chance that the sample used does not accurately represent the population from which it is drawn. So... Normally, samples of a thousand people are considered sufficient for accurately measuring public opinion through the use of surveys. So larger sample sizes can yield more accurate predictions of the opinions of a population, but there is a trade-off in terms of cost since it is also more expensive to survey more people. So consider the diminishing returns of sampling more and more people. The sample error from a sample of 500 people is 4.4%. With 1,000 respondents, it drops to 3.1% and with 1,500 to 2.5%. That is, the smaller and smaller gains in accuracy have to be weighed against the increasing costs of polling more people. So the consensus among statisticians and pollsters is that the optimal trade-off point is 1,000. Hence, 1,000 is the gold standard. But today, many surveys conducted online include thousands of respondents, making their predictions potentially even more accurate. When an election poll of 1,000 people indicates that 51% of voters surveyed favor the Republican candidate and 49% support the Democratic candidate, the outcome is considered too close to call because the difference, 2%, is within the margin of error of 3.1%. So even with a good sample design, surveys may fail to reflect the true distribution of opinion within a target population. One frequent source of measurement error is the wording of survey questions. The words used in the question can have an enormous impact on the answers it elicits. The reliability of survey results can also be adversely affected by poor question format, the ordering of questions, poor vocabulary, ambiguity of questions or questions with built-in biases.
Often minor differences in the wording of a question can convey vastly different meanings to respondents and thus produce quite different response patterns. So, for example, for many years, the University of Chicago's National Opinion Research Center, they've asked respondents whether they think the federal government is spending too much, too little, or about the right amount of money on assistance for the poor. Answering the question posed this way, about two-thirds of all respondents seem to believe that the government is spending too little. However, the same survey also asks whether the government spends too much, too little, or about the right amount for welfare. When the word welfare is substituted for assistance for the poor, about half of all respondents indicate that too much is being spent. So today, pollsters are increasingly turning to the use of online surveys, often using similar techniques to that of telephone surveys. Internet surveys can be more efficient, less costly, and more accurate than standard phone surveys. And they include much larger samples of young people and yield more accurate results within age cohorts. But many surveys you will find online do not use probability sampling or random sampling, and thus are not representative of the American population. Instead, they reflect those willing to take a quiz online. Knowledge Networks and YouGov are leaders in internet polling using sampling methods in which respondents complete surveys online instead of being interviewed on the phone. YouGov has a large population of respondents, hundreds of thousands of individuals, identified using probability sampling, so the sample is representative of the American population. Individuals without internet access are given free subscriptions or complete the surveys using the TV. If a client commissions a survey, YouGov randomly draws a sample of, say, a thousand people from its population of online respondents. Because respondents have agreed to complete a number of surveys in exchange for free internet access, they are more likely to complete the surveys. YouGov has been more accurate in predicting the outcomes of recent presidential elections than other firms. Other polling companies use different methods for conducting internet surveys, often by using statistical weights to make the surveys generally representative of the American population. Internet surveys such as the Cooperative Congressional Election Study can have very large samples, up to 50,000 people, and rolling panel survey designs where the same respondents are interviewed repeatedly over months. In the future, Internet surveys may be more representative of the American population than traditional telephone surveys and may replace telephone surveys entirely, especially given falling response rates and the growing number of households without landlines but using cell phones extensively or even exclusively. Critics of Internet surveys contend that the samples may still be biased by not including enough respondents from groups that are more likely to be offline, especially non-English speakers, Latinos, the elderly, and the poor. Online surveys may include more respondents who are interested in politics than the normal population. Proponents contend that minorities and the poor are increasingly online, even via mobile access, and that the samples are representative of the American population. Because online surveys from sites such as YouGov have proved to be more accurate in forecasting elections than many telephone surveys relying on cell phones and landlines, online surveys are likely here to stay. In contrast to online surveys with more than 60 years' experience studying American public opinion, the American National Election Studies, ANES, is the premier broad general survey. The ANES traditionally has conducted surveys using face-to-face -face interviews, but because interviewing respondents in person is very costly, the ANES increasingly conducts online surveys as well. The ANES is considered the gold standard for political surveys research because of its accuracy, design, and question wording. 
Telephone and online surveys increasingly embed experimental techniques within the design in which one group of respondents is given a treatment or unique question wording and responses are compared with a control group of respondents that does not receive their treatment. The researcher is interested in the difference in responses between the treatment and the control group. Experiments are one of the most rigorous methods for detecting causal relationships. In another survey framing experiment, individuals in one group were exposed to a frame arguing that affirmative action is necessary to correct past discrimination, while those in a second group received a competing frame arguing that affirmative action gives African Americans special treatment. Not surprisingly, those in the first group showed greater support for affirmative action than those in the second group for the same policies. By using a treatment and control group design, framing experiments prevent provide more leverage in assessing cause and effect and measuring changes in a public opinion. Framing experiments are an important way to understand how public opinion changes in response to political elites and the mass media. So the history of polling over the past century contains many instances of getting it wrong and learning valuable lessons in the process. As a result, polling techniques have grown more and more sophisticated, and pollsters have a more nuanced understanding of how public opinion is formed and how it is revealed. Polls are best understood as best guesses of a political outcome, but not a prediction of fact. The 2016 election provides a recent example of inaccurate polling. The vast majority of opinion polls leading up to the election predicted that Hillary Clinton would win by a landslide. She did not. Political scientists have found that survey results can be inaccurate when the surveys include questions about sensitive issues for which individuals do not wish to share their true preferences. For example, respondents tend to overreport voting in elections and the frequency of their church attendance because these activities are deemed socially appropriate. Political scientists call this the social desirability effect, whereby respondents report what they expect the interviewer wishes to hear or whatever they think is socially acceptable rather than what they actually believe or know to be true. On other topics, such as questions about income or alcohol and drug use, respondents may feel self-conscious and choose not to answer. Given the failure of public opinion polls to predict the outcome of the 2016 election, many people question if polls systematically underreported support for Trump and his policies. Explanations for why Trump performed better at the ballot box than in the polls include that Trump did better in polls of voters, either registered or likely voters, than in polls of all adults, and he also performed better in polls conducted online or by automatic script surveys with a live telephone caller. This latter finding may be the result of the social desirability effect. Because Trump is a polarizing and controversial figure, some people may have been reluctant to tell an interviewer they support Trump or his policies. Online surveys may allow respondents to reveal their true preferences without facing social pressure to conform. So questions that ask directly about race or gender are particularly problematic. Social desirability makes it difficult to learn voters' true opinions about touchy subjects such as racial attitudes because respondents hide their preferences from the interviewer for fear of social retribution against what might be deemed politically incorrect opinions. For example, researchers have found respondents in surveys didn't want to admit that they opposed social school integration and would not vote for the black candidate and therefore abstained from answering the question. Measuring public opinion can be a challenge. Measuring opinions incorrectly can bias the findings. However, 
Surveys using experiments can be designed to tap respondents' latent or hidden feelings about sensitive issues without directly asking them to express overt opinions. The importance of accurate sampling was brought home early in the history of political polling. 1936 literary, literary Digest poll predicted that the Republican candidate, Alf Landon, would defeat the Democratic incumbent, Franklin Roosevelt, in that year's presidential election. The actual election ended in a Roosevelt landslide. The main problem with the survey was what is called selection bias in drawing the sample. Selection bias is polling error that arises when the sample is not representative of the population being studied which creates errors in overrepresenting or underrepresenting some opinions. So the pollsters, they had relied on telephone directories and automobile registration rosters to produce a survey sample. During the Great Depression, though, only wealthier Americans owned telephones and automobiles. Thus, the millions of working-class Americans who constituted Roosevelt's base of support were excluded from the sample. So selection bias was also at play in pre-election polls in the 2012 presidential election when Gallup significantly overestimated Latino support for the Republican candidate, suggesting a close race between the Republican candidate Mitt Romney and the Democratic candidate Barack Obama. The Gallup numbers were incorrect because of the selection bias. That is, they had too few Latinos in their sample and therefore their predictions were inaccurate. Estimates based on aggregating information from many different statewide public opinion polls were more accurate. So in recent years, the issue of selection bias has been complicated by the fact that growing numbers of individuals refuse to answer postal's questions or they use voicemail or caller ID to screen unwanted callers. If pollsters could be certain that those who responded to their survey simply reflected the views of those who refused to respond, there would be no problem. Some studies, however, suggest that the views of respondents and non-respondents can differ, especially along social class lines. This can lead to incorrect inferences of public opinion. So push polls, these are not scientific polls and they're not intended to yield accurate information about a population. Instead, they involve asking a respondent a loaded question about a political candidate designed to elicit the response sought by the pollster and, simultaneously, to shape the respondent's perception of the candidate in question. One of the most notorious uses of push polling occurred in the 2000 South Carolina Republican presidential primary, in which George W. Bush defeated John McCain and went on to win the presidency. Callers working for Bush supporters asked conservative white voters if they would be more or less likely to vote for McCain if they knew he had fathered an illegitimate black child, which was a false statement. Public opinion polls can influence political realities and elections. In fact, sometimes polling can even create its own reality. The so-called bandwagon effect occurs when polling results convince people to support a candidate marked as the probable victor. This is especially true in the presidential nomination process, where they may be multiple candidates within one party vying to be the party's nominee. Researchers found that the change in national media coverage received by a candidate before and after the Iowa caucuses, the first nominating event, was a major predictor of how well the candidate would do in the New Hampshire primary, which is the second nominating event, and the presidential primaries nationwide, controlling for other factors including money and standing in the polls. A candidate who has momentum that is one leading in the polls, usually finds it considerably easier to raise campaign funds than the candidate whose poll standing is poor. Wanting to highlight the momentum he felt he had, 
Trump frequently cited his lead in the polls during the 2016 presidential primaries and general election to mobilize his base. <clears throat> so computational data analysis and social media have opened new ways to measure mass opinion. Some of the most fundamental questions about politics and public opinion are now being measured not with surveys, but in terms of actual behavior online, including Google searches. Big data refers to data sets that are so large and complex that they require advanced analytics rather than traditional methods to reveal insights on a massive scale. So opinions about a wide range of policy issues could be gleaned from the aggregate preferences of millions of movie viewers. This type of analysis is called data mining or data mining. Twitter, the preferred medium of candidates and political elites, introduces another way to measure public opinion and agenda setting using text analysis. One study analyzed the number of Twitter followers for the 2016 presidential candidates and tracked changes over time, as well as tracked mentions of any of the candidates based on millions of tweets. A candidate's lead in positive Twitter coverage may be more important to winning the White House than a lead in traditional public opinion polls. Coding large amounts of Twitter data can also be valuable for measuring phenomena that are difficult or impossible to measure with standard telephone surveys, such as the use of racial slurs. Rather than rely on surveys to measure the opinions of U.S. citizens, researchers are now using Google search data. So, Google search data has been able to predict local flu outbreaks based on search terms of symptoms like fever, etc., considerably earlier than the Centers for Disease Control declares a flu outbreak in a local area. Beyond Twitter, big data are playing a role in election forecasting, predictive an analytics, and measuring public opinion. For example, polling aggregators can be used to track public opinion more accurately. A blogger named Nate Silver became an overnight sensation in 2008 by aggregating thousands of public opinion polls conducted in each of the 50 states to predict the winner of the presidential election state by state more accurately than Engel's single polling house, a feat he repeated in 2012, though he was often incorrect in predicting the winner in the tumultuous 2016 primaries. So Silver and 538.com also used statistics to average thousands of public opinion polls over time to create a more accurate estimate of presidential approval than any one single poll. The thousands of polls they draw from are weighted based on their sample size, methodol methodological rigor, and past accuracy. Polls that historically have been more accurate count more. Five months after his victory in the 2016 election, Trump had the lowest approval ratings of any president in modern history during his first 150 days in office. The Democratic Party and the Republican Party now use a database of 240 million Americans, including a wide range of data from voting history and party registration, social media, consumer purchasing patterns, and so on. Using big data and data mining, researchers can predict factors that make a person more likely to vote in the first place and whether he will cast a vote for the Republican or Democratic candidate. Data mining has been used for years in business, marketing, and economics, but is growing in importance in campaigns, elections, and policy. The study of politics has been on the forefront of this big data revolution with sophisticated analyses of massive amounts of data, including text scraping and text analysis of social media. And so these are just a few examples of how very large sample data, millions and millions of data points are changing how we measure public opinion today. So I know it was a long podcast, multiple segments, but I hope... It was informative for you guys, and I look forward to talking about 
the media with you guys and also uh, looking at historical events. We're going to be looking at like the Gilded Era and the Progressive Era coming up soon on the American History Podcast. You guys, peace out and have a great day.